Well, last week I, I began a series. I didn't tell you it was a series because I wanted you to come back. <laughs> but if you'll remember, if you were here, I talked about and uh, maybe made some pretty bold statements in confidently challenging a lot of the conventional thinking about discipleship in many churches and in Christians' lives. And I hope that you were able to get the message that discipleship at its core is about being with him, to learn from him how to become like him. That the essence of of full-throttle discipleship is being a disciple so that then we are equipped to become and make disciples, being disciples in order to make disciples in that order. This week, for the next three weeks, I want to take you into what I think is perhaps the best chapter in the Bible on discipleship, what it looks like and how to see results in our lives. And it's from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read it for you here. Open your Bibles with me or read it off the screen. But it's chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And the reason? For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And... Christ, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now, what Paul is asking here is, are you really in your right mind? (laughs) Are you thinking right? But before we get into unpacking this passage and and seeing its relevance and uh, the practicality and the application of it, it would be really unfair of me to just dive into chapter 3 without giving you some kind of a view of Colossians overall. Why was Paul writing and how does this all fit together? So let me give you a view of Colossians and the city of Colossae um, from 10,000 feet, if you will, to give us an overview. Colossae was a town in what is now modern-day Turkey. Colossae was once a, a very, very prosperous city, but there was an earthquake in the first century that kind of brought it down, and, and uh, it kind of diminished a little bit, and uh, it didn't get to rebuild itself as maybe its sister city, Laodicea, down the river, who had great treasury and lots of commerce, and so they had the money to rebuild their city virtually within the next year. Colossae couldn't do that. And yet it was remaining a a significant city because it was still on a a trade route. And so it it was a place where a lot of travelers from different countries and different lines of thinking would would come to do business or to stay over or whatever. Paul was a teacher and, and, of course, a church planter in Ephesus, about 100 miles away. Paul spent three years there. And one of the men that came to faith through his ministry was a man by the name of Epiphras. Now, Epiphras was discipled by Paul, and then he went out as a missionary, so to speak, 100 miles inland to Colossae to share the gospel. And there, too, he reproduced in himself what Paul had reproduced in him, and he he won men to Christ and women to Christ, and he started a church, a church in Colossae. Now, as we read in the book of, Col- of the book of Acts, when this Christian movement began around this guy from Nazareth, this criminal who was executed, 
there was a lot of resistance. And that resistance came from the traditional, devout Jewish community. And they came back with hostile criticism. And we read in the book of Acts, and sometimes that produced violence, even death, for some Christians. Well, it was no, uh, Colossae was no, was, it was a tough place to live too as a Christian. Because this devout, traditional Jewish community were very hostile to them and criticizing them. Saying that, how dare you pirate our scriptures? And how dare you open up the ranks from the, of the people of God to include Gentiles now, of all things? And you make them co-heirs with us. We've been God's people since Abraham. And now you're opening the door to Gentiles. What's this world coming to? <laughs> and not only that, but you're disregarding our ceremonies, our special days of observance, our purity laws, our practices, and this and that. How dare you? You're not staying with the program. And basically what they were saying was, your faith in Christ isn't sufficient. You've got to stay in the program with us and observe these laws and observe these days and this and that. Well, Paul was in prison. He never visited Colossae, but he was in prison in Rome And somehow he got word about what was happening in Colossae. There was this hostile criticism, which then challenged and and resulted in a crisis of confidence in these early Christians in Colossae. They started to think, well, maybe maybe our brothers and sisters in the Jewish community have got it right. Maybe we are overstepping our bounds. And so their, their confidence in Christ then began to erode a little bit. So Paul heard about this, and he responds with a letter, the book of, or the letter of Colossians, and it's written to these early Christians there. And basically, what he spends his space in writing, doing, in the first two chapters is showing them and reaffirming their faith and trust and their confidence in Jesus Christ. He, he reinforces the, the supremacy and the sufficiency and the adequacy of Jesus. Jesus is all and is in all. And you can just read chapters one and two, just verse after verse after verse. It's kind of like a shot over the bow, a warning to these early Christians. Don't you dare give in. Don't you dare think less of Christ and try to add something else into the mix for your salvation. That's not where it's at. It's Jesus, and he is adequate. He's sufficient, and he's supreme over everything. So you stay with him. But it was also a booster shot, if you will. Not just a a shot over the bow to warn them not to cave or capitulate, but it was a booster shot to inject new confidence and assurance in who they believed in and who they lived for, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, interestingly enough, in Paul's style of writing, and you can find this pretty consistently throughout the letters he wrote elsewhere, that he spends the first part of each letter talking about what would be truth or doctrinal issues, as he does in Colossians, chapters 1 and 2. 
And then at some particular point in the book, and you can find this in almost every one of his letters, he uses a word that indicates a pivot or a shift from the doctrinal to the practical, like therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you ask what it's there for. (laughs) And that's how you interpret Paul. And you know that what has preceded this is doctrine, and then what follows is practice. What you believe, or what you should believe, and why, and then behavior. Here, he uses the word since, or since then. So he's talking about the supremacy, the adequacy, the sufficiency of Christ, and he uses a lot of prepositions in the first two chapters, in Christ, with Christ, united to Christ, so on and so forth, trying to illustrate and talk deeper about their relationship with Christ and their new identity in him. And then we come to chapter three. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see what he's saying? He says, if you're going to buy into this, then act like it. (laughs) But before you can act like it, you got to think like it. And so he says, are you in your right mind? Are you thinking rightly? about Jesus Christ and about the kingdom of God. Haven't we all used that phrase, are you in your right mind? (laughs) Or about somebody else? He's not in his right mind. Something else is speaking, like his pain or his drugs or his alcohol or whatever the case might be or the circumstances. That's not him. He's not in his right mind. That's because circumstances and the emotion is dictating and controlling the mind. He's not himself. Or when Kyrie Irving, for instance, has a great game as, as a point guard, and we, play, we say affectionately, Kyrie's playing out of his mind. <laughs> so we go to the other extreme. But either way, it's, the reality is this person is not thinking consistently as they normally would think. So Paul is saying, in an up-close and personal way, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. You see, what we see in in this first few verses is actually defined and described in greater detail in Romans 6 through 8. The first four verses, there's this, uh, what, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized also into his death? So that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might have a new life. So what Paul, what we see in baptism, for example, when we baptize believers, we're symbolizing this spiritual reality of submersing them into death. They're dying to themselves and dying unto Christ. And then we're raising them up to newness of life, being raised with him, participating in his resurrection, if you will, into a new life, being a new creation. So, we come to this first verse, since then, you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, what we go with from here are what I believe to be three instructions or three incentives for right thinking. 
to set our hearts on things above, to set our minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things. What's the first instruction or the first incentive? And that is a past remedy. Since you've been raised with Christ, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. So the word since then indicates this is not some hypothetical situation. This is the real thing. Christ is the real thing. And my response to him indicates that it's got to flow over into my behavior, my lifestyle. It starts with my thinking processes, my thinking. You know, another way that John says it is learning to be in the world but not of the world. How do we balance those things? How, how am I supposed to keep a foot here on earth when my citizenship is in heaven? How do I stay here and live as a tourist, if you will, and my citizenship's up there or out there, wherever heaven is? How do I balance that? And that's a tough one. Christians always are struggling with that. Well, you see, our, our, when we come to Christ... We become a new creation. We come under new leadership. We come under a new influence. And so setting our hearts on things above, setting our minds on heavenly things, is really to get a clearer picture of the high road or the narrow way or the higher ethic or the fact that his kingdom is not of this world, those kinds of things. So that I have a new agenda. I have a new framework from which I operate and filter the world and all of its events and activities and the circumstances of my life. There's a shift. And it starts with my mind. Thinking. Right thoughts about God and about what he wants from me. You know, there are two dangers about setting our hearts and our minds on things above. We've all heard that phrase, um, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. <laughs> that means we, we kind of insinuate that he's detached from reality. Have to be careful with that. In other words, when things happen to us or to other people, we better be careful that we just don't jump up and click our heels and race off into the horizon and saying, Jesus is still on the throne. Hallelujah. You know, that's true, but we've got to be careful that we don't downplay the real things of life. But, we, but setting our hearts and minds on things above helps us gain perspective so that we see all of circumstances, all of life against the backdrop of his sufficiency and his sovereignty and his will. There's another thing that happens sometimes is is um, when life gets tough, we got to be careful. Sometimes when we get into critical situations where we, like the Colossian Christians, get criticized, or we, get, uh, we face hostile remarks or insults, you know, we, we live in a pretty snarky culture that makes fun of Christians. Bill Maher, for one, on CNN, you know. 
Um, you know, it's interesting. He, he, he says Christians are idiots. He's not afraid to say that anywhere, anytime. But I never see him debating anybody that knows what they're talking about. I think Bill Maher is just afraid of what's on his own heart. <laughs> and he suppresses the truth. And that's what comes out when you see him on television. And he makes comments like that. Christians are idiots. But you see, we got to be careful in this that we don't, where we're so heavenly minded, and we get so excited about that, that we'll do almost anything to get others into that. Here's what I mean. we got to be careful that we give the whole gospel and not trim and take shortcuts and water down things that are very clear in Scripture. we got to be careful not to downplay sin. It's a reality, folks. It's a reality. We can't downplay commitment. We can't downplay God's wrath because that's the side of his love. Sometimes we focus so much on the love of God that we start thinking of him like our buddy and that he'll just wink off everything that we do wrong or what we think wrong and so on and so forth. Though he'll understand. He loves me anyway. He'll forgive me. He wants me to be happy. Be careful. Or sometimes our contemporary songs. I know there's a couple that, that I really, my eyebrows go up when we sing them. In fact, I don't like to sing them because they make me feel like I'm asking Jesus out on a date. <laughs> and he's more than that. He's more than that. So some, some dangers and extremes when it comes to being so heavenly minded and so heavenly oriented. So when I'm thinking about heaven, it finds, I'm looking at what matters. I'm looking for the high road, the higher ethic, the new drumbeat to which my life marches. My citizenship is in heaven. It's a new agenda from God and not from pop culture. God sets the atonement or the, the agenda in my life, not others. Here's a word that was, is fun to remember this passage. It's called sursum corda. You learned a little Jamaican this morning, now you're going to learn some Latin. <laughs> Sursum corda means up with your thoughts. Carry that with you sometime and just think about it. And when I see you next week, I'm going to ask you, Sursum corda, and you should say, up with my thoughts. Carry that with you through the week as you face difficult circumstances. Think, first of all, man, I've got to set my heart and mind on heavenly things. But also, Sursum corda, I've got to... Ratchet up my thoughts. Well, there's a second thing here. Present reality. A present reality is the other instruction that Paul gives, or the incentive to think rightly. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We've been buried with him, raised with him, and now your new life is the real thing for you. But as real as it is, it's still a spiritual reality. So other people, especially those who don't know Christ, aren't going to see what's going on inside of you. So in that sense, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is our life, appears, then the world is going to see. Then the world will know who the real ones are because we will appear with him in glory. So Paul is saying here, a present reality. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And because it's that spiritual reality, not only do other people not see it, but we don't see it. We know it's true, right? 
but we don't see it. The reality of it is, is in Christ and hidden or concealed from us. But one day we will experience it with all of its fullness. The third thing here that I want to direct your attention to is a future certainty. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know, I saw a bumper sticker the other day on the back of a car. It said, fishing is my life. (laughs) Do you have a passion like that in your life? Where your life just revolves around this? It, It almost dictates the circumstances of your life, fishing or kids or work, your job or whatever. My job is my life. No, Christ is your life. Christ is your life. And when we're fully identified with him, then we will know him when he comes. And we will appear with him in glory. Boy, if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. Think about that. And we too will appear with him in glory. You know, I have a... um, a book that is a delightful book that uh, actually unpacks this passage. It's from James Bryan Smith. It's called Hidden in Christ. And I learned a little tip from him on this, which actually coincides with what I do in my personal life. When we, was a, there's a ball game on TV that I can't watch because I'm out of town and don't have access to a TV, or um, it's at a bad time of the day and I can't get to it. I'll record it. I'll set it on my DVS, DVR and record that game. And then I do my very best to guard myself from learning the outcome. I don't want to know the outcome. I want to watch it as if I'm watching it live. And you know what usually happens? <laughs> I accidentally learn the outcome. But interestingly enough, I go ahead and watch the game. And then even though I know that we won... I'll actually find myself during a difficult inning for the Indians, you know, when everything implodes, or in the qu- a quarter of the Browns or the Cavs, and I just I start finding myself getting anxious, saying, what are you doing? You're going to affect the end of the game. No, I know the end of the game. <laughs> but my anxiety surfaces anyway. And I need to remind myself that, hey, we win. We win in the end. It's okay. And so it is with us as Christians. We win. We win in the end. And when we are with him, we are in him, and we are like him, when Christ appears, we too will appear with him in glory. A future certainty. And so Paul is saying, when you think those things, past remedy, a certainty, and so on and so forth, you're going to think rightly. So we come to the point of a a so what. So what? How do we make this practical and relevant? Well, remember this. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, okay? Orthodoxy is right doctrine or right thinking. Remember that? And that leads to orthopraxy, which is right practice. But you have to have one before the other. So orthodoxy, 
leads to orthopraxy. It begins here, what we feed our minds. Another way to look at it is thoughts. Our thoughts shape our actions. Our actions shape our habits. Our habits shape our character. And then our character shapes our legacy. But it starts here. Here's another one. It's a more philosophical framework. And that is our presuppositions. That is what we choose to know and believe shapes our perspective. What I'm thinking is going to shape my perspective on things. And then my perspective in turn shapes my priorities. And then my priorities in turn shape my practice. See what I'm saying? It all begins right here in the brain, which is, has to be the most magnificent piece of physical matter in the universe, our brains, our thought processes, our ability to think of God. You know, there's a, um, I had a funeral this week, and I rode out to the gravesite with the funeral director, and we got to talking about how Grief affects us. And he happened to mention to me that he does grief counseling. And he says, you know, Randy, he says, uh, when you get a muscle spasm, or a charley horse as we call it, it's basically that your muscle tissue is so overworked it is incapable of ridding the toxins out of those muscle tissues. And so it will cramp up. He says the same thing happens in our brains. When we're under such heavy pressure and tension from grief or other kinds of emotional pain, our brains, if we're not careful, can seize up. They can almost have a spasm, if you will, which then influences our emotions, and then our emotions also affect our body. So what starts in here can actually have the overflow into our health. I was talking to a psychologist after the first service, and she said, spot on. Spot on. The trick is learning how to think correctly, thinking rightly, even through grief, even through pain, even through disappointment, whatever the case might be. So we come to so what, or now what? The first part of the message, I talked about the what of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And then we just talked about the so what, why is it relevant, starts here, now what? What do I do with this? How do I practice it? Well, first of all, soak yourself in the word. Soak yourself in the word of God. Study it, read it, memorize it, meditate upon it. I would suggest you start by memorizing Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And then work your way up to verse 17. Memorize it, and it'll stay with you forever. It'll guide you. Secondly, practice the word. Take a, a verse or a word or a phrase that, that just pops out at you and write it down on a three-by-five card and carry it with you through the day. And when you got stuck in traffic or you're waiting for a doctor or whatever the case might be, whip that little card out and remind yourself of the truth of Scripture so that it embeds itself in your mind, so that it then starts to affect your thinking and your lifestyle. And then thirdly, walk in the fullness of the Spirit. That is, remember that the Spirit's 
job description is to comfort you and to fortify you and to remind you of the word in your life. So walk in the fullness of the Spirit. Submit to him. Surrender to him. Don't follow your own way. Follow the word of God as the Holy Spirit makes it real and relevant in your life. And then there's this great quote. I can't leave without giving you this quote. The happiness of your life, we could also say slash condition, the condition of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts. You do a dissection of your personal life, and I'll bet you dollars to donuts you'll find that this is true. The condition, the happiness of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts. And there's another Latin phrase, actio sequitur esse. <laughs> That's a mouthful, isn't it? But it basically, the old Greeks, the old Latin, uh, the Romans and so on, they knew this concept. It's action follows essence. Jesus said, as a man thinks, so is he. Starts here. Right thinking. And then finally, Dallas Willard has written this. He says, the deepest revelation of our character, all right, now this is the window into who you really are when you're alone, character, is what we choose to dwell on in our thought, what constantly occupies our mind, as well as what we can or cannot even think of. Now that last phrase is tricky. Say for instance, uh, I leave here and I, drop my wallet out there in the narthex and you come along and pick it up and you open it up and you notice that, hey, this belongs to Randy Heckert and there's also some credit cards in here and a $20 bill and, gee, should I give it back or should I just kind of sneak it out? Nobody knows. Nobody noticed me picking it up. What goes into your mind at that moment tells me a lot about your character. Not just what you do, but what enters your mind. And if you're even tempted to walk out with this wallet, it shows me what your character might be. Because it shows what either can or cannot or does or does not even enter your mind. So as we wrap this up, let me ask you this. Are you in your right mind? <laughs> are you setting your heart and your mind on things above? And what difference does it make in your life? Let's pray. Father, I ask now as we leave this place with the intention of obeying and not only processing this, but embedding it into our hearts so that it makes a difference in the way we live. Give us grace to do that. Give us common sense to listen to the Holy Spirit this week and help us in this journey. We love you. Thank you for how you've made us. Thank you for loving us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.